Well, I'm going to read to you our text this morning. It comes from 2 Samuel chapter 16, and I'll read to you verses 1 through 14. So 2 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 14. When David had gone a little beyond the summit, Ziba, Mephibosheth's servant, was right there to meet him. He had a pair of saddled donkeys loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 bunches of summer fruit, and a clay jar of wine. The king said to Ziba, why do you have these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride. The bread and summer fruit are for the young men to eat, and the wine is for those to drink who become exhausted in the wilderness. Where's your master's grandson? The king asked. Why, he's staying in Jerusalem, Ziba replied to the king. For he said, Today the household of Israel will restore my grandfather's kingdom to me. The king said to Ziba, All that belongs to Mephibosheth is now yours. I bow before you, Ziba said. May I find favor with you, my lord, the king. When King David uh, got to Baurim, a man belonged, belonging to the family of the house of Saul was just coming out. His name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he was yelling curses as he approached. He threw stones at David and all the royal servants, the people and the warriors on David's right and left. Shimei said as he cursed, get out. Get out, you man of bloodshed, you wicked man. The Lord has paid you back for all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you became king, and the Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son, Absalom. Look, you are in trouble because you are a man of bloodshed. Then Abishai, son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and remove his head. The king replied, Sons of Zariah, do we agree on anything? He curses me this, this way because the Lord told him, Curse David. Therefore, who can say, Why did you do that? Then David said to Abishai and all the servants, Look, my own son, my own flesh and blood, intends to take my life. How much more now this Benjaminite? Leave him alone and let him curse me. The Lord has told him to Perhaps the Lord will see my affliction and restore goodness to me instead of Shimei's curses today. So David and his men proceeded along the road as Shimei was going along to the ridge of the hill opposite of him. As Shimei went, he cursed David, threw stones at him, and kicked up dust. Finally, the king and all the people with him arrived, exhausted, so they rested there. So we are continuing in this series on the life of David, and right now we are looking at a point in David's life where after he had established the kingdom, he had unified the kingdom uh, under his throne, both the southern portion being Judah and the northern portion Israel, and he, was, he had subdued their enemies, all is going well. Then we have the famous story of David's fall whenever he uh, took Bathsheba and he had her husband Uriah, uh, not Uriah, uh, yeah, Uriah, uh, slain on the battlefield. And then God's judgment is pronounced upon David because of his sin. And then as we go f- forward in 2 Samuel and looking at the rest of David's life, we see 
how God's words of judgment and of consequence for David's sin are proven true, how he experiences this. We see the downstream effects of his sin uh, in his kingdom, in his household, and in his family. And one of the first ways that we see that is with the rebellion of his son Absalom, which is the episode that we are looking at now. Absalom was a son of David who rebels against David. Uh, We saw this last week through uh, years of scheming and waiting for the right moment to try to take the throne from his father. Now, whenever David learns that uh, Absalom intends to take the throne and he is coming with an army, instead of facing his son in battle, he decides to flee the city. And as he goes out on his way, he meets these various different characters. And that's what we're looking at this morning. As David is fleeing Jerusalem, he is going out into the wilderness to find a city where he can uh, have refuge. He encounters these different men. He encounters a man named Ziba, we'll look at, another one named Shimei. And, and um, what he experiences with them. What we need to remember as we look at this portion, and especially this chapter in David's life, is that here we have God's chosen king who has been rejected by his people. Not just rejected by his own son, Absalom, but also by the majority of Israel going along with Absalom instead of remaining true and loyal to David, the king that God had chosen for them. He is God's chosen one. He is God's anointed king, but the people rebel and the people reject him as king. As we look at this story and and all of these stories, it's important that on the one hand, it's good to look at David as an individual, the choices that he makes and uh, the way that he acts and what we have to learn from that. But Importantly as well, we need to make sure that we keep in mind the office that David is fulfilling as God's chosen king and see him primarily in that light so that we can understand the relevance of it uh, to us today. So remember, look at David in the light of his office as God's chosen king who has been rejected and not just simply as an individual. And we'll learn about what it means whenever we rebel against God. We're going to look at just two different sections of this chapter. I intended, I originally intended to look at the entire chapter, but I felt like there was plenty enough for us to just look at the first part of it. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the opportunity, the opportunist uh, being Ziba, and then we're going to look at the rejected king, David, and that, that portion with him and Shimei, who was hurling curses at him. So we're going to look at Ziba, the opportunist, and then David, the rejected king. So the chapter starts off David is making his way through the wilderness. It says that he climbs a summit, and there, outside the city, uh, he encounters Ziba. Now, if you've been with us in this series for, uh, for the past couple of weeks, then the name Ziba might be, uh, might be familiar to you. You might remember it. Ziba was the servant of a man named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the last remaining uh, person of the household of Saul. He was actually the son of Jonathan, Saul's son, so he was Saul's grandson, and after David had come to the throne, he is reigning in Jerusalem, he defeats his enemies, and he is sitting securely on his throne. He looks around and he says, is there anyone, anyone left of the house of Jonathan uh, that I can show kindness to? Because he had made a covenant with Jonathan, despite uh, Saul, Jonathan, Jonathan's father, uh, and his intention to take David's life, David and Jonathan had a close, close friendship. 
They had made a covenant together that they would remain loyal to one another and that David would show kindness and uh, the love from this covenant to Jonathan's household forever. And so after he is, becomes king and he sits on his throne, he intends to fulfill that covenant. And so they find this man named Mephibosheth. He was a cripple. And earlier, whenever he was young, he had been dropped and it, uh, it damaged his legs and he was crippled ever after that. He couldn't walk. And so you have this crippled grandson of Saul. He is brought to David and along with him, his head servant, a man named Ziba. And in that episode, it's, it's a beautiful story. If you want to go back and read it, uh, David shows kindness to Mephibosheth and to Ziba by giving him all that once belonged to Saul in lands and in servants and in livestock uh, and in wealth. He had a place in David's household forever, and he always had a place at David's table. So now we see Ziba again as David is on his way out of Jerusalem, and he is going through the wilderness. And Ziba comes up to him with all of these gifts. He has donkeys for them to ride. He has food and provisions for them. He has, uh, he has, he has drink for them as they go into the wilderness. And David notices that Mephibosheth is not with him, which would be odd. And so he says, well, where is your master? Being Mephibosheth, the grandson of Saul, Jonathan's son. He says, where is he? Where is he? And Ziba says to him, he stayed back. He says, David, he has, he has rejected you as well. But I am loyal to you, which is why I have brought you all of these gifts for you and your men as you go through the wilderness so that you might, you might have them on your journey. So if you were with us in that story of David showing kindness to Mephibosheth, it's shocking and it's disappointing because you, you ask yourself, after all of the kindness and after the love and the generosity that was shown from David to Mephibosheth, how could he also reject David now? But we would be wise to withhold judgment on Ziba's story for just a little bit and to look at his story and the circumstance with a little bit more scrutiny rather than just, just taking it for surface value. Let's think about this with Ziba's story. First of all, <clears throat> He said, Mephibosheth stayed behind because Mephibosheth said to himself, now the kingdom of my grandfather Saul is finally going to be restored to me. Why would Mephibosheth conclude that he is about to receive the kingdom? Absalom was the one who was coming back to sit on the throne. Absalom was the one leading the rebellion, who had been gaining uh, the, the affection, who had been stealing the hearts of the people, who had been campaign, campaigning for that position, right? He is the one who is coming for the throne. <clears throat> so why would Mephibosheth say, I'm going to get it? That doesn't really make sense, right? But that's what Ziba said. Secondly, we can ask this question. If Ziba is actually so loyal to David, right, to bring him all these provisions and so on, then why does he stay behind? Notice he doesn't come with all the provisions and then say, and I'm going with you, and I'm going to be with you. Instead, he just brings all these gifts, these, these patroning gifts, and then after receiving the blessing from David, because David believes his story. And so he says, everything I had given to your, your master is now yours, right? So you have all that land and so on. He says, oh, thank you. And then he goes back to enjoy all that new wealth. 
makes you question it a little bit. If he is so loyal to David, that he's going with David, he's giving him all this, then why does he stay behind, right? It's almost as though you can imagine Ziba thinking to himself, I've now, I, I have now two potential future kings. I've got David on the one hand, right, who, the, the, the reigning king, but he's on the run, and then this new guy coming in, this new administration with Absalom. So what does Ziba do? He brings all these patroning gifts to David to show him his loyalty, to show him his affection, to show him how he's on his side. But what if David loses? Well, then he stays back near to Absalom where, we don't know, it doesn't tell us, but we can assume because he's staying back, well, what if he's kind of playing the same game with Absalom? And after David leaves, he goes back and he takes all his wealth and he starts sending patroning gifts to Absalom to remain on his good side as well. This would not at all be a novel thing in, in, in history. If you are familiar with ancient history and you remember the Roman Civil War, so after the Republic of Rome falls apart and before we have the Roman Empire come about with Julius Caesar, there's a civil war between some of the, uh, the, the three top generals uh, in, in Rome at the time. So you might remember reading or hearing about you know, the battles between Caesar and Pompey or, or Pompey and so on. Well, during this war, Julius Caesar had been receiving letters and gifts, uh, you know, uh, uh, boxes filled with treasures from some of the reigning uh, nobles and wealthiest members of Rome. They were sending him these letters and saying, you know, Julius, we're on your side in this. We want you to come out on top, so receive this modest gift. We hope that it helps you. We hope that it sends you on to victory. He was receiving all these patronizing gifts. Well, after Caesar had finally won, he defeated the other generals in the Civil War. It was over. They went into, I can't remember which general it was, but they went into one of the general's camps. And they went into his tent, and they opened up this chest. And you know what was inside of it? All these letters. All these letters saying, uh, like I said, I can't remember who it was, but you know, Pompey, you know, we hope that you win. We are on your side. And you know what his soldiers found? They were from all the same people who had been sending letters and gifts to Caesar. They had been playing this game where they're sending gifts and letters to all the sides so that no matter who won, they were on the winning side, you see. Ziba seems to be playing the same game here. He's going to David, bringing him these patronizing gifts, telling us this suspicious story about Mephibosheth, but then he goes back and stays near to Absalom. You see, David saw, uh, I'm sorry, Ziba saw David's trouble, and he didn't see an opportunity to actually express loyalty to him, but instead he saw an opportunity to enrich himself. He saw an opportunity to turn uh, David's troubles into his fortunes. He, he saw this opportunity and capitalized upon it to benefit himself. And so the first thing that we learn is this. People will feign loyalty to build their image or benefit themselves. People will feign loyalty to benefit, uh, to build their image or benefit themselves. We can do this in the kingdom of God with our King Jesus all the time. We can act like Ziba whenever we perform certain actions or we do certain good things or, uh, in order to improve our standing in people's eyes. You know, we can serve in different ways 
where people see it. And we serve in such a way, knowing that people will see it, knowing that it will make us look pretty good, right? We can serve in a way, and we can do this and that, and we can do this good action in a way where it makes people say, wow, what a guy, right? Or so-and-so is not so bad, right? It boosts our standing in their eyes a little bit. You know, we can do this in church. We can do this at work, in the office. We can do this uh, at home. We can do this all over the place where we do certain good things, and we put on little performances where we're not actually doing something righteous. We are not selflessly putting others first, <clears throat> or we're not genuinely trying to help as much as we are trying to impress people. You know, and I think another way that we Christians do this quite often <clears throat> is we have a friend or someone near who is going through a time of difficulty, and we say to them, I'll pray for you. And we usually don't, right? Because it's a lot easier to just say, I'll pray for you, and then move on, right? And it also makes us sound great. It makes us sound really caring. It makes us sound really nice to that person to know, oh, that's wonderful. They're going to pray for me. Instead of us just hearing about what so-and-so is going through and then praying for them and not telling them about it, we usually do the opposite. We, make sure, we want them to know the sentiment, but then we rarely follow through. How often do you intentionally do a good work and make sure that no one sees it? Or do you place yourself doing that good work in the right place and at the right time where someone will notice and you'll get a little pat on the back, right, or a little boost in image? We can be opportunists just like Zeba, where we feign loyalty to our king, where we even we, we capitalize on the name of Jesus, but not so much for Jesus, but in order to boost ourselves, our image, and our, our standing in people's eyes. There are many, many opportunists out there who will use the name of Christ for self-promotion. It's easy to point to those big examples, you know, uh, maybe, maybe leaders or people in the culture who have done this to greatly enrich themselves. But you know what? Even if you haven't done it in a way that greatly enriches yourself, you can do the exact same thing. We are opportunists as well. Now, what do opportunists need to do? They need to repent. Friends, what you need to do, if you, are, if you recognize that you are an opportunist, that you many times have feigned loyalty, or that you have uh, done good actions only to be seen and to be blessed for them, you know, friends, sometimes it can even be doing something good, hoping that God will see it, <clears throat> and then give us a little bit of blessing in return, rather than doing it for the joy of serving him. If we recognize this in ourselves, then what we must do is repent. Repent and place Jesus at the center. Because do you know what you're doing whenever you live life in that way? It's pretty obvious. <clears throat> it's in the action itself. You're placing yourself at the center. Right? If you're doing a good action in order to be noticed, what you, you're making sure that you are noticed, that you are the center of attention. You're not doing good works that they might shine past you to glory to God, but rather instead glory to self. In your own heart, what are you doing? You're not, doing, uh, you're not pursuing righteousness, selflessly serving others because of a, a joy in your heart from salvation and wanting to please God, but instead from this internal desire 
to fulfill your own desires and to boost your own image. You're putting yourself at the center in your own heart, in your own mind, and also uh, attempting to put yourself at the center of other people's attention as well. Friends, whenever we do this, what we need to do is repent from it. Repent from it and place Jesus at the center of our hearts and at the center of other people's attention as well. Now, friends, Christians especially, you don't need to be afraid of repentance. You don't need to be afraid of repentance. If you are a Christian, then you at this point, or your goal should be as you grow in the faith, your goal should be to make the act of repentance something that you practice as and perfect as much as you have practiced and perfected the art of breathing. It is something that we always do. It is something that for the Christian is a joy to do because we recognize that repentance is, is not a self-groveling and, and, and a beating ourselves up and a making ourselves feel terrible and tearing ourselves down, but repentance is simply turning away from that which pulls us away from what we most love, what we most desire and need, which is Jesus. It's a turning away from those things which would pull us away from Jesus, get in between the way of us and God the Father, and then going back to him. And Christian, we also take joy and we practice and perfect repentance because we know that there is grace for us. That no matter how many times we have repented, every time we go back, there is grace for us. I think one of the reasons that we often are afraid of repentance is because we have this bad idea in our mind that the gospel is an invitation to a second chance. If you've been with us already before, you've heard me rant against this. I don't, I, I don't like this idea in the American church today that Jesus died so that you might get like a reset button. And now you can try again. In this kind of thinking, repentance is something that you only do one time right? Because Jesus died for you to get a second chance. So you repent to get that second chance, and now you have to perform better this time. But what happens if you fail? Do you have a third or a fourth or a fifth chance? How many hits of the reset button do you get? I'm not necessarily saying that someone taught you to think this way, but many of us may, I think, operate that way. Where we think, oh, he, you know, after all he, he did for me to give me the second chance, I can't mess it up now. Not recognizing that in the gospel we are offered a justification which is final and eternal. What that means is a, a turning from someone who is guilty to now someone who is not guilty and in right relationship with the Father. And that turning from guilty to not guilty is established and secured in the work of Jesus Christ so that now your relationship with God is completely and always based upon grace. So you don't get a second chance. You get a new life, a whole new life where there is always grace for you for every time you turn back. And so, believer, especially you weary Christians who have been who have been afraid of repentance because you're afraid that you went one too many times. How much relief does this give you to know that there is grace upon grace upon grace for us, which is why we take joy in and we practice and perfect the art of repenting again. 
So repent and place Jesus at the center. You are not made to live with yourself and your desires at the center. You are not made to live like Zeba, to be an opportunist where you see all of life as just different chances to, uh, to increase yourself, to enrich yourself, to promote yourself, to boost your image, or to carry out your desires. We humans were not made to live this way. And yet it is the way that many of us live. Even Christians, we are sometimes tempted to live this way, placing ourselves and our desires at the center. I got to speak to a group of college students this past week, and I explained to them that whenever you live this way, you will inevitably find yourself miserable and empty. It's ironic. We assume, and we're told by our culture, you know, you got to put, put yourself first. Treat yourself. Do what's right for you, right? Follow your own path. Believe your own truth. And if you just can uh, express the self and indulge the self and increase the self as much as possible, then that's going to be the road to the best life. And you know what it creates? People who are miserable. Look at our culture. we got a lot of people suffering. Because the more that we put ourselves and our desires at the center, the more miserable it makes us and the emptier it makes us. Instead, we were made to live on the worship of God. Just as our bodies were made to live on food, you know, we need the proteins and the carbs and the fats. It's the energy that our bodies run on. So our souls need to run on something too. It, they need, our souls need fuel, something to live on. And it can't be the self. In fact, it can't be anything else that this world offers us. It has to be something that turns us outside of ourself, looking to something greater. No, you might look at things that are greater out in the world. There's a lot of stuff out there that's greater than you. But you know what? If it is not something infinite, then it's not going to be enough. Your heart was made to run on the worship, on the, on the placing at the center of the infinite God who draws near to us, who reveals himself to us, and who makes it possible for us to know him and worship him in the gospel. Whenever we turn our lives from self and look outward and place them onto God, place him at the center, and we worship him, well, then out of that worship, do you know what we can do? Then we can joyfully obey, not because we have something to prove, not because we have someone that we want to impress, not because we have an image that we need to maintain or promote, but instead we obey out of joy. Rather than obeying out of anxiety, rather than obeying out of a, a pressure that we feel, how would you like to obey out of joy? As just another expression of your worship, when you live that way, then you will be fulfilled. The empty self will be filled up. You'll be full. That misery of living on self will be turned into the joy of living on Christ. David and his men continue to make their way through the desert. They come through this mountain pass where they encounter another man. This time, this man does not feign being a friend or being loyal to David at all. In fact, he has, he has no reservations about telling David exactly how he feels. They come to this place and they encounter this man named Shimei. 
And it says that uh, Shimei was a former, uh, he was a servant or some part of, of the house of Saul. He wasn't a part of Saul's family uh, per se, but he was a part of the household of Saul. So a servant or, or administrator in his kingdom in some form or another. And he comes out and for all these years that David has been reigning, Saul's kingdom and his throne has been gone for a while now. Okay. It's been years have passed, but after all these years, Whenever Shimei now gets the chance to see David face to face in his rejection, he comes out and he rails against him. Shimei comes out and he is hurling curses at David, he says, it says, and he's throwing stones at him. He's barraging him, raining down to him the, the stones and curses. The king, he's rejected and he's leaving the city, but he is still the king. And Shimei, he, had, he doesn't care. It's interesting, you know, in David's weakness, it gave Shimei the boldness he needed to unleash some held back resentment. I think in that we can read a lot of different situations. We can read people and movements and maybe even ourselves. But in David's weakness, it gave him the boldness he needed. He didn't do it while David was in power, but now he goes after him and he hurls these these assaults with words and with objects. One of David's generals, the brother of his head general, Joab, a guy named uh, Abishai, rightly recognizes the, <laughs> how ridiculous this situation is, that they're just allowing this guy to throw stones and yell curses at the king. And so he says, David, would you like for me to go and cut his head off? Not a bad solution to someone who's hurling curses, right? He's like, you want to go cut his head off? And David says, no. No, that's pretty incredible. You see, because if, if I was in David's situation, I would have said, please. <laughs> All right. Uh, how about yesterday? Like, go get, go shut that guy up as fast as possible. Right? It would have been great. But David instead, <clears throat> he says no. <clears throat> Why? He refuses. And in verse 12, he says this. He says, perhaps the Lord will see my affliction and restore goodness to me instead of Shimei's curses today. Like I said to us, it's kind of surprising. And for many of us, if not nearly all of us, we would have chosen the opposite. We would have said, thank you, Abishai. Here's a medal. (laughs) It's surprising to us that David says no. Why does he say no? Because he has this belief he has this faith that was, that was silent until he had to speak in responding to Abishai. But as he was going and receiving those curses and those stones flying by him, he had a faith that he was holding on to, which was that God might see his affliction, he says. God might see his suffering. He might see the situation that he was going through. And that, though he doesn't deserve it, that God might be good enough Notice he says that, you know, he doesn't just expect a, like, like, like a gift from God, but he, ex, he ex, expects an experience of the character of God. Because the word goodness here, I guess I should explain. <laughs> the word goodness in Hebrew is, is a word meaning the goodness of God. 
So whenever David says, restore goodness to me, in the full nuance of the Hebrew word he's using is restore the goodness of God to me. So he's not just saying, you know, maybe he's going to get me out of this or maybe he's going to give me a gift from it, but he is expecting an experience of God through it. He's expecting to, um, to witness a revelation of the character of God, the goodness of God in this situation. That's the faith that he was holding on to that gave him peace as he was going through that valley. So why does David say no? Because his peace isn't found in having Shimei's head on a platter. It was found in something else. Here's our second point for today. The Christian finds peace in the goodness of God in spite of any situation. The Christian finds his or her peace in the goodness of God in spite of any situation that we go through. Now, how can David have such a faith? How can he make a statement like that? That maybe God will see my affliction, and though I don't deserve it, still turn this cursing into blessing or this affliction into goodness? How can he say something like that? Does he know what God will do? Does he have a secret prophet who told him something? No. You see, the only way that David could have uttered such a phrase is if he knew something about the character of God. That's what he had. He didn't have a prophet who told him, Here's how this situation is going to go. God and, and, and God himself, and through no prophet or priest, gave him an indication of how this situation was going to turn out. Or if one of those stones that Shimei was throwing was about to knock him off of his donkey. So how can he have such a faith? Because his faith is rooted in what he knows about the character of God. And that he knows that he is a God who is infinitely ridiculously good. The commentator and scholar Dale Ralph Davis says this. He says, David has a deep-seated confidence in a God of unguessable grace who has a tendency to replace cursing with goodness. He assumes that Yahweh has this strangely wonderful way of looking upon guilt and yet returning blessing instead of curse. This is the God that David knew. He knew the God, our God as well. Our God is the God who delights in taking our afflictions and turning them into blessing. He takes the pain of our situation and he takes them as opportunities to show his goodness. That is what David was holding on to, what he was hanging on to in his affliction, in this moment, and what kept him throughout the affliction quietly faithful to the Father, going through it. Furthermore, there is this. Before verse 12, you might remember from whatever Matt read earlier, David says to his men, he says, Shimei is only doing what God has ordained or commanded him to do. David also recognizes that what he is going through in that moment is completely under the control of God. Through the situation, even though he is feeling a bitter providence, he is receiving a bitter providence, he nonetheless <clears throat> recognizes it as God's providence over the situation. He says, Shimei is only doing what God commanded him to. And perhaps God will look upon my affliction and turn it to goodness. 
His peace is in the goodness of God, but his peace is also in the providence of God, knowing that even Shimei's curses and the stones being thrown at him are not outside of God's control. Even in the cursings and even in the betrayals of this chapter, God's chosen king, who had been rejected by men, shows himself to be faithful to the Father. As I reminded you guys earlier, it's important that we look at David in these stories. And we don't just see David the individual, but the office that he fulfills and all that it means for Scripture and also for our life. And in this moment, as David is experiencing a bitter providence, yet trusting himself completely to the control and the goodness of God, David is pointing forward to someone else. He is pointing forward to the ultimate king, Jesus who was chosen by God and yet rejected by men. Jesus, who was betrayed by friends, just like David was. Jesus, who was, even as he was being cursed, and even as he was being beaten, and his body was taking the brunt of the people's rejection, even then he knew that the situation was under God's control. Because even the rejection of the people and the the whippings and the beatings and all that he went through was under the control and ordained by God. It was under God's control. Jesus received their cursings. And more than just receiving the cursings of the people, Jesus received the curse that we should have received for our sin, for our rebellion against God. Because we have been like Zeba placing ourselves at the center of life and trying to make everyone else and everything revolve around us rather than placing God at the center. We're like Ziba. We're like Absalom, who kicks God's king off the throne in order to try to take it for ourselves. We're like Shimei, who through our actions and maybe sometimes even for some of us through our words, have cursed God. Jesus received the curse that we should have received, that should have been ours to bear on the cross. But instead, he went to the cross, and he took that cursing, and he turned it to blessing for us. God looked at the affliction of Jesus, but he did not spare him. Jesus died on the cross. His life was given up. He looked at Jesus's affliction, and he turned it into goodness and blessing poured out upon you and I. The Father turns, turned our curse, put upon Jesus into our blessing, so that now, no matter what we go through in our lives, we can know that we have a God who is in control. Whether we experience the blessing of providence, or we are sometimes going through a valley that's difficult. We're going through a storm, a storm where it feels as though we're experiencing more of a bitter providence. We can take peace in the security of knowing that no matter what we endure, God is in control. If God could be in control of the curses of Shimei, and if he could be in control of the betrayal of Judas and of the treachery of those who crucified Jesus and turn those things into blessing. If he could do that in those situations, then we know that no matter what we go through, he is in control and he can turn it into our blessing. Moreover, we know that we have a God who sees us in our afflictions. And though we recognize that we have no right 
to petition him, that we do not deserve deliverance and we do not deserve for our affliction to be turned into goodness, that we can yet, because he is so merciful, because his grace is so vast and deep, we can throw ourselves upon his goodness, trusting that he does see our affliction, that he does care, and that he has, as Davis, Davis said, an unguessable grace, a goodness which is so surprising that it might turn our affliction into an experience of God's goodness. So friends, let me ask you this as we close. Do you find your peace in the goodness of God? It's so easy for us to start finding our peace in other things instead. We find our peace in how our savings are doing, right? Or what, what, our, what our banking accounts are looking like. Or the direction that business is going. When our business is going up, we're feeling at peace and things are great. When our business goes down, all of a sudden our peace vanishes. Or maybe it's in our relationships. We have different relationships that we look at in life, and it's those things that we get our peace from. You know, it could be our children. Whenever things are going well, they're obeying, things are happy, we have tons of peace. But then whenever they disobey, or there's rebellion in our own households, then we we lose our peace. It's not just frustrating because they're disobeying, but it rocks our soul and it takes away that security that we once felt. Maybe it's, it's with a spouse. Maybe it's with someone that you're hoping will be a spouse one day. It's so easy for us to start looking at our situation and and whatever factor it might be for you and finding our peace in this or that. And as long as things are going well there, we have peace. Whenever they're threatened, then it goes away. Instead of having our peace grounded in the only secure place, which is in the goodness of God. You know, think of it just like taking your, you, you have your investments, do you want to place your investments into, uh, into a place where they can be stolen or where they can be taken away or where they are, they are very, very vulnerable to the ups and downs of a market and so on? Or would you rather take your investments and place them in a place where they can never be stolen and where they are, they are not vulnerable to the ups and downs of markets and of business and of life and so on? Where would you rather have your investments that you depend upon in that place that is secure? So where are you investing your peace? Are you placing it somewhere where it can be stolen by the malice of a person or by the sinfulness of of man? Are you placing it somewhere where it can be taken away because it's vulnerable to the ups and downs of life? Or are you going to put it somewhere that's secure? Do you have your peace in the goodness of God? The goodness of God is secure. And whenever we do this, as the gospel calls us to, to place Jesus at the center and our lives completely invested into him, then what the gospel does, whenever we accept it and we live by it, you know what it does? It brings you great freedom. Now you are free from, you are liberated from the ups and downs of life, from the Uh, from the fickle opinions of people around you and of the opinions of peers and what they think of you or, or a family. You're no longer controlled by those things. It doesn't matter what people think of you. That's not what your peace is. Your peace is in the goodness of God and the security of knowing what he 
thinks of you and how he loves you. You're no longer controlled by the ups and downs of life because God is in control of it all. So it gives you a great freedom. It doesn't mean that you're not affected by the ups and downs, but it means that you can take them in stride. It makes you more resilient. You know what else it makes you? It gives you greater fortitude to continue pressing on in life, to go through situations where others, and maybe you yourself in another circumstance, would have been tempted to give up. Maybe it's in a calling that God has in your life. And as his callings often are, it's difficult. There's setbacks, and it's hard. You know, it could be in, in your calling as a parent to parents out there. There's times where you want to give up. You know, I'm not saying you're going to kick your kid out the door, but you know what I mean. You can quit disciplining like you know you should. Quit holding the boundaries like you know you should that are good for your children. But you've been called to be a parent. And it's strange how in the times where we are most, where parents are what are most needed, it's when we most want to give up usually. Don't give up that calling. Find your peace in God and then let it give you the fortitude you need to go on. For you students, you go through difficult times, but you know that you are following a, a, a career path. You know that you are following an academic uh, path that God has set before you that he wants for you to have. But you have a difficult professor or you go through a hard class, or you just, despite your best efforts, you, you failed on an examination, an assignment, and you're tempted to give up. But if your peace is in the goodness of God, and if his control of the situation, and trusting that maybe even in my affliction now, he will carry me through this, then it gives you the fortitude you need so that you don't quit. We don't have to be controlled by our situations. Instead, the Christian can endure by the peace that comes from the security in the goodness of God. Let's pray. Father, I confess that I'm often Ziba and that I've been Shimei, that I've been Absalom, that I have been a rebel. I've been an opportunist. And Lord, I've cursed you with my actions. And so I thank you that you have grace for people like me, that you have mercy vast and deep, great and infinite enough to wash away all my sin. Lord, I thank you for the cross that your chosen king, though he was rejected by men, rejected by us, still endured and stayed faithful to his calling to swallow up what should have been our curse and instead turn it to blessing for us. Lord, I pray that we would all in here this morning receive that blessing, the blessing of our sins being forgiven, of our rebellion being forgiven, of our times of trying to place ourselves at the center, being forgiven, that you would give us the grace and the gift of repentance and faith so that we would turn away from those things that come between us and you, so that you would take away the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, 
that you would take away the spirit of of a rebel and give us the heart and spirit of a child, of a son and daughter, for whom it is a joy to obey you. Father, I ask for that blessing for all of us here this morning. So we might go forth in life obeying, not out of anxiety, not doing good works because we have something to prove, but doing it because it is a joy to do for you. Bravely enduring and persevering through every situation and facing any storm because we have our peace in a place that is secure that the world doesn't know and cannot comprehend, which is in your goodness. Father, we praise you and we thank you for these, the blessings of the gospel. In the name of our King Jesus, we pray. Amen.